Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given the gospel of your Son through the apostles, and who saves all who believe in him. The word of the Lord, this is the gospel proclaimed by the apostles. This morning I thought we would um, take a look at something that is mentioned several times in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. There's examples of both. Um, And that's the Nazarite vow. And I want to today kind of go through how the vow begins, why it's there, uh, what's the purpose for um, the Nazarite vow being followed, um, what happens if somebody um, defiles themselves during the process of the vow, which, because we're human, that can happen. But it's not only us that can defile ourselves, but others can cause us to do that. And, uh, and then also how to resolve the vow when the vow is finished. Um, so, if you'll join me in Numbers 6, 1 through 8, we'll start with, uh, start with that. I did want to say that the, the word Nazarite means consecration or devotion or separation, set apart. So to be a Nazarite, you are set apart. You are consecrated to God. You are devoted entirely to God for the period of time of the Nazarite vow. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink, and he shall drink not, uh, no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any uh, grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grape vine, from the seeds even to the skin. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head, He shall be holy unto the days are fulfilled, for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall um, let the locks of his hair uh, on his head grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister. When they die because his separation to God is on his head, and all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So, this this is a list of what you have to do or what you can't do in the process of doing the Nazarite vow. Um, notice that it, a male or female can do the vow, either one. And um, so the, here comes the commandments that apply to this. The first one is... Um, you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor any vinegar that's made from the wine or strong drink, nor juice uh, made from the grapes. You shall not eat fresh grapes. You shall not eat dry grapes. You shall not eat grape seeds or the kernels. You shall not eat grape peels, skin, or husks. So grapes are pretty much out, right? Why? Grapes tend to be 
what's used to make wine for celebration. Grapes tend to be a fruit of a celebratory type of situation. So now that others are celebrating, here's an outward appearance of you're abstaining from something. Now, the next big question is, well, what's the big difference? Most people aren't going to know this. The Romans probably aren't going to know this. The Greeks probably aren't going to know this. But who does? Those who were bound in the Scripture, those who were reading the Scripture and, and under God's commands, Israelites, the Jews, um, they will be very familiar with somebody going, wait a minute, he's not drinking wine. He's not drinking any strong drink either. He's still around us. But he's, he's not drink, eating grapes. He's not eating, oh, I wonder if he's doing this. Okay, It's going to be something that's going to spark some type of thought in that other person about what this individual is doing. There's also an inward thing that goes on for the person who's doing the vow. And I've gotten very familiar with that this week. Uh, my doctor, well, I, put, I went to a specialist for a diabetes thing. And um, my diabetes has been out of control for a while. I haven't been able to get it under. And um, what the current doctors want to do is just put me on more meds, on more meds, on more meds, on more meds. And I watch that with my dad, and it doesn't solve the problem. Okay. I learned this week, or this last couple of weeks, that there is over 20-some-odd types of type 2 diabetes. It's not just one. So to treat 20-some-odd types of diabetes one way does not make sense. You're going to have to break it down and figure out which type you're doing and treat it very specifically for you to be successful in those things. So, but here comes what I learned in what they would have to do in the inner struggles of those. Um, I'm a chocoholic. I'm not allowed to eat chocolate. Not allowed to eat caffeine. Caffeine was my crutch, as I said earlier. Uh, within an hour from the time I get up, not even an hour, I'm already drinking tea, I'm drinking coffee. I periodically will drink sodas throughout the day. And every time I get tired, I jump back over to caffeine to keep myself moving. And it has allowed me to run a schedule that I realize I shouldn't and can't be running on a normal diet. Okay. So there's a struggle with that. So every time my body gets tired and I know I've got this thing out here, I want to jump and go back to this thing to get me moving. But I can't. Okay. And as right might go, oh, you know, period of vow is different, the time amounts, but maybe it's two, three years. What if he goes and says, gee, you know, I remember how that tastes. That tastes really good. I enjoy that. You know, grape juice is one of my favorite things to drink. Can't touch it. Okay. But there's desires inside the body that begin to come out, especially when you're staying away. And anyone in here, and I know a lot of you have done fasting, you understand what those things begin. Alcoholics and drug addicts should understand this quite well, actually, because inside the brain it keeps going. One won't stop. One won't hurt. Just one, just one, just one. Problem is that you jump on a pattern and it, you continue that pattern and you're in trouble. The next set deal with the person's hair. 
The commandments are this. Thou shalt not cut or shave the person's hair, and that they shall let the hair grow long. Outward appearance. Okay? What is this for? People are going to see a guy that is not traditional with really long hair, depending on how long the vow is. Right? They're to bind the hair. Um, I, I got the sense in the picture of a modern day individual with maybe dreadlocks because they're binding the hair all the way down and it's continuing to grow. Specifically somebody who's been in a, um, a Nazarite vow from birth because a razor will never have cut their hair. That hair is going to get long. Crystal Gale is going to have nothing on them, right? But they're going to have to keep combining it and they still have to move around and do all the same things that we do. But it's going to be, have to be put in a manner in which it's functional for them as well. Um, but again, in outward appearance, somebody's going to go, oh, hey, wait a minute. Why is that guy, Daddy, why is that guy got so long hair? Oh, he's a Nazarite. Well, what's that? Right? God seems to do this thing with outward appearances that cause questions that cause our behaviors are different, that cause questions so that we can teach. What about an inward thing? I don't know about you guys. Every eight weeks, like clockwork, I go get my hair cut. And it's usually already driving me crazy by the eight weeks. Okay, uh, My hair does things I don't want it to do half the time. Maybe some of you experience that. Eventually, I won't have any hair, so I won't have to worry about it. <laughs> I could probably just shave my head, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but there's a pride thing that comes in with this, right? There's a vanity thing that comes in with this. It's a focus on who I am, focus on making sure my outward appearance looks good, make sure I'm acceptable to other people around me and all of those things. Not so with the Nazarite, right? If he is like me and I'm having to let my hair grow, what is my focus? My focus is not internal. It's now God and God only. Why am I staying away from wine grapes? Why am I not cutting my hair? This is because God has commanded me because for a period of time I am taking my, myself, my desires, my wants and setting those things aside and I am doing as God commanded it. So that others will know what I am doing and I will be reminded what I am doing. The third uh, set of commandments focuses on um, about not rending a person or not rending himself unclean for the dead. What that is talking about is mom, brother, sister, dad, close friends, those types of things, pass away. He is not to be around them. In the, in, the, in the other of the 613 commandments, it is said that he is, um, when somebody comes around a person who is dead, that they are unclean for seven days. Okay? And there's a ritual purity that they have to go through to allow themselves to be back in Service to God, back in worship to God, back around the community, all of those things. Okay? This individual is not allowed to do that. He is totally, wholly devoted to God, so he is unable to take that time of separation away. Okay? So to rend themselves, which would be normal for anybody else, to be around their mother and father and all of those things when they pass away, they're not allowed to do that. 
So if, like today, if somebody took the Nazarite vow, I'm going to take it for two years and I'm fully going to uh, turn myself over to God and my father passes away. I'm not allowed to go to the funeral. I'm not allowed to go to those things. The second part of that is, um, well, I'll get to that one in a minute. 6.18, I want to jump forward just a little bit. The last of the commandments is this. It says in 6.18, let me grab there. There we go. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated uh, head of hair at the doorway of the tent of the meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So the third of the commandments. So you have one set that deals with wine, strong drink, grapes, anything to do with grapes. Um, you have the second set that deals with um, his hair and not shaving his hair and, and binding his hair as it grows long. And the third set is about not being around the dead. The, four, the last one... The 618, and we'll look at this a little bit more in a few minutes, has to do with the successfully completing the vow, what the ritual is for successfully completing the vow. But the person is commanded to do certain things. Okay. So there are two types of Nazarite vows uh, found in Scripture. The first is for a specific period of time. Um, so the person says, I'm going to devote myself to God fully for three years. And that's all they do is study and work and do everything. Their life is completely directed toward God, everything that they do. When that three years is up, they go through the ritual purity sessions and, and the sacrifices and all that God has commanded to do, and they're released from the vow. Okay. The Apostle Paul uh, in Acts um, is talked about that the, that he was under a Nazarite vow. There's also at that in the same scripture area that he there's four other individuals which we'll talk about in a little bit who are also under the Nazarite vow, and he will uh, they will all end their vow together. The second type is what's called a lifelong uh, vow, and the examples of these would be from Samson. Uh, would have been a Nazarite for lifelong, uh, Samuel. Um, and then John the Baptist also was a lifelong Nazarite. The Nazarite vow in these areas tend to be, have two specified, um, two beginnings specified in the stories. The vow comes through either a revelation received by the parents, such as in, uh, regarding Samson and Judges, chapter 13. Okay, uh, picking up a verse 2, it says, There was a certain uh, man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose uh, name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have, had, and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give 
uh, birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man, and so on. So the first one is a revelation from an angel. Uh, from an angel. Uh, John, the, uh, John the Baptist was a similar. If you look in Luke chapter 1. And you guys know this story. It says, uh, verse 8 says, Now it happened uh, that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by a lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside in the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of the incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you will give him the name of John. You will have the joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be a great in the sight of the Lord. And he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the, whole, uh, with the Holy Spirit while yet in the mother's womb. And he will um, turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So, those are two examples of the um, revelation type of, of the Nazarite vow. There's a second one where it's a lifelong, and this one appears to come from a vow, from a cry out to God to relieve suffering. Okay, in the story of Hannah and Samuel, First Samuel. Chapter 1, verse 11. What happens... I'll just read it. As soon as I can find the 11, it's kind of small. There it is. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come upon his head. So what is happening in the story of Hannah and what brings it up to this is, is her husband has two wives. One has uh, sons, daughters, many of them, and that individual is really teasing and picking on Hannah and saying all these things about how she's barren and she can't, right? She's not giving birth and what have you. That can cause, well, we have a major problem in, in our society these days with bullying. Right? That's basically the same type of thing that's going on. There's a lot of psychological effects that can happen with that. There's a lot of sadness that can happen with that. So Hannah cries out to God and says, If you do this, I in turn will do this. So the interesting note that I found in, in these three of things is all three of these mothers, at the time of the vow, at the time of the vow was made. All three of them were barren. 
Now, I'm not saying this means anything except that God had a purpose. Okay, that's what I will say. But there could be a connection to the firstborn being um, gods. And I find it interesting as I'm going through there, I wonder if any of them would have or did, and there really is no reference to this. There's one reference with Hannah, but if any of them did the redemption of the firstborn. Remember when the firstborn was when the first child was born, they were supposed to go in and redeem that individual back. And I'm wondering if Elizabeth or Zacharias did that. It's not talked about. I'm also wondering if um, Samson's parents did that, and it's not talked about. But in regards to Hannah, In 1 Samuel, back in chapter 1, verses 24 to 28, says this. And this is, the, this is what she has done. Um, right, no, that's not the right chapter. Now when she had, had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. Although the child was young, then she slaughtered the bull or then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Um, she said, "O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my, uh, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has uh, given my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is dedicated to the Lord and the... Um, and he worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah's sacrifice that she brings in is not a sacrifice of redeeming that firstborn, but it's a sacrifice of dedication, dedicating that child to the Lord in this Nazarite vow. Okay. Um, next, the purpose of the vow is as follows for each of the, each of the three children as far as the lifelong purposes. Those are, those are mentioned. Uh, in regards to Samson, it was to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Um, for John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of the Messiah, and he would turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And for Samuel, Samuel would end up succeeding Eli as the priest after Eli's sons defiled um, the temple. Okay, and themselves before God. Uh, the purpose for Paul's again is not mentioned, but it does represent that it is there that it mentioned that he is there. God also provides a opportunity or a, a ability if an individual should uh, defile themselves in the process of maintaining this Nazarite vow. He allows for purification um, to happen, and that's found. How that's happened is found in um, Numbers six, verse, starting at verse nine. But if a man dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his dedicated head of hair, then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves and two young pigeons 
to the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer uh, one of the, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering and make atonement for him concerning his sin because of the dead person. And that the same day he shall consecrate his head and he shall dedicate to the Lord uh, his days as a Nazarite and shall bring a male lamb one year old um, for a guilt offering. But the former days will be void because his separation was defiled. So what's supposed to happen here is he is supposed to shave his head on the day he becomes clean. So that reference, the day he becomes clean, is a reference to the commandments of defiling oneself by touching or being near a human corpse. And that's found in Numbers 19. Starting at verse 14, it says this. This is the law when a man dies in the tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every opened vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who is in the open field um, in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or um, who has died naturally or um, or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then uh, for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt um, purification. It's the burnt offering and the purification from sin and flowing water for, uh, shall be added to them in a vessel. A clean person shall take a hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all of the furnishings um, and on the persons who were there and on the one who touches the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify himself from uncleanness and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be unclean by uh, and shall be clean by evening. So this, the normal Jew, anybody who's not doing a Nazarite vow, this is the ritual that they have to go through to be clean before God so that the separation from God isn't there anymore um, in the process of their lives. Okay? Now you've got an individual who is not supposed to be anywhere near a defiled individual. By the way, this other thing would be, let's say my father did die. And I do his funeral, and I prep the body, and I do all of that. Is that okay? Yes. Except for somebody who's under a Nazarite vow. Okay? In that process, as I'm doing this, everything is done. So now I go through the seven days of purifying myself and cleaning myself and restoring myself back to the presence of God. Okay? Under the Nazarite vow, my father dies. I'm not allowed to do that. Why? There's choice. I'm solely, uh, solely given out to God, right? So I don't have that option. But life is going to happen, and if I happen to be sitting there and the guy next to me has, drops dead of a heart attack, I am now unclean, as Scripture has said. God provides a way for that by accident, by accident only, for that to be purified. Okay. So... 
second after uh, after shaving his head. Notice that he's going to be shaving his head after um, the day. On the seventh day, he shaves his head. Shaving his head is one of the things that shows that the vow is completed. Okay. So he's going to bring two young turtle doves or pigeons to the priest, to the doorway of the tent of meeting. Um, And then he shall dedicate his days as a Nazarite to the Lord, bringing a guilt offering. His days as a Nazarite will be void to his vow of separation unto God because it was defiled. So he's two years into it. He's got a year left. This issue happens. His vow is done. He goes to the ritual of shaving and breaking all of those things after the dents of cleaning. And his everything that he's done up to that point pretty much is void as far as the vow is concerned. Samson, though, was interesting. Um, and most of you probably know his story. But I'd like to look at his example of his living his Nazarite vow for a lifelong vow. Um, I'd also like to make note of this, that Samson seemed to have a pattern that where he begins, or when he begins down a road of disobedience, um, and then his offenses just go a little bit further, a little bit more, a little bit further, a little bit more. Um, So... In Leviticus, or uh, first of all, Samson on the way down to, first of all, he's picking a wife who is a Philistine. His parents are like, uh-uh, go look around for one of the ones in, in, who's an Israelite. It's like, no, I want this one. Um, the one thing it does state in Scripture is that that is the Lord's will that Samson has that because now he's going after an occasion to bring down the Philistines. Okay? So there's going to be a connection that's going into that. In the process of going down to see the Philistine wife and to have his father and mother get the wife, Samson kills a lion. Um, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he kills the lion. Okay? His parents don't know this, though. In Leviticus... Eleven, twenty-seven, and twenty-eight. It says um, also whatever walks on its paws. Okay, that would include a lion. Among all the creatures that walk on all fours are unclean to you. Now, this specifically is talking about they can't eat them. Okay. But at the same time, it also says, whoever touches their carcasses, meaning dead, becomes unclean until evening. And the one who picks up their carcasses shall wash his clothes and become and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. So now he goes and kills this lion, which technically makes him unclean, right? And then he goes on down, and we're looking in Judges... 
So it says this. It says, Then Samson went uh, down to Timnah with his father and his mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring up to him. The spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, um, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. Stop there for a minute. So he actually kills this lion. He's technically unclean because he's now come in contact with the dead carcass of one that travels on paws. And now he's around his parents again, which makes them unclean because he didn't do the ritual of the purity. Okay? He didn't take time to do that. You're unclean, by the way, Mike. And now, Mary, you are too. And now, Dr. Sorry. This whole side over here is so stay away from them. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> by tonight, you'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, sorry, I got to find where I was at. So again, he stays unclean until evening. If he had picked up the carcass, then he must also have washed his clothes. He has to do the ritual of the purity. In uh, Judges 13, 5 through 9, excuse me, not 13, 14, Samson scrapes honey out of the carcass. So if I keep going, so 14, sorry, I think I wrote down the wrong verses. Thank you. Uh, When he returned later to to take, um, take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped, now the lion is still unclean, by the way. So anything that touches the lion is unclean, by the way, no matter how good it tastes. Okay. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, (laughs) he must really not like them. (laughs) He gave some of them and they ate it, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. So he keeps doing things that's defying himself, and then he's taken other people with him. Even, and if they would have known, they probably wouldn't have done it. That's my sense. That's probably why he didn't tell them. Okay. So now Samson and his parents are unclean. Um, there we go. And further down the chapter, Samson provides this riddle to the Philistines. And it's um, then Samson, picking up at 12, then Samson said to them, let me now uh, propound a riddle to you, if you will indeed um, tell me within the seven days of the feast and find out, then I will give you uh, 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall um, give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle and uh, that we will, that we may hear it. So that he said to them, out of, the eat, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. He's talking about his lion and the honey. But, this, but they could not tell um, the riddle in three days. Then they came, to, uh, came about on the fourth day that they said, uh, said to Samson's wife, go entice your husband so that, uh, we may tell, uh, so that he may tell us the riddle. Or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have, um, have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? 
Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me, and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people, and have not told it to me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or mother, so should I tell you. Um, However, she wept before him seven days while uh, their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him so hard. So here he goes, his wife now. He hasn't told anybody else the, the riddle in itself. She presses him and presses him and presses him and presses him. And he finally breaks. And what does she do? She tells the other people so they come back and tell the riddle. Okay. Sounds awfully familiar to the same pattern that he did with Delilah about his strength in the Nazarite vow. So let's look at that. Turning over in chapter 16 is that story. And you guys, and I'm, I'm not going to read it, but you guys know the story. Uh, he goes into a prostitute, okay? Not acceptable according to the laws. Um, and stays with this prostitute, and the Philistines come in to find out what his strength is because he's already killed a thousand of them, or three thousand of them, I believe, with the jawbone of a donkey. And he tells her one thing, and he's messing with her, right? He's just playing around. And, uh, she comes back, goes and tells them. They come in. They say, the Philistines are upon you. He breaks the binds. And then she's like, I thought you really liked me. You know, why are you telling me these things that are not true? You must hate me. Same thing his wife was doing. Um, he tells her another story. The same thing happens, right? Eventually, he tells her the true secret. Notice that each time... Let me read this real quick because I want you to catch this. Each time he says what the story is, he gets closer and closer to the truth, to revealing what the secrets of of his strength are, why he is able to do what he does. Um, Okay, starting at 15. Then he said, then she said to him, how can you say, how can you say I love you? Uh, when your heart is not with me, you have deceived me three times and have not told me where you, your great strength is. It came about when uh, she pressed him daily with her words that his soul um, was annoyed to death. So, so um, and I'm sure we could probably understand that both male and female in this context. So, um Okay, this is when the razor, I'm sorry, let me find, it was just a little bit before that. Okay, go back up to 10. Um, Then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have deceived me. Here's the second one. This is the one I want you to see. Deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you you may be bound. And uh, he said to her, if they bind me tightly, with new ropes which have not been used, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah um, took new ropes and bound him uh, with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson, uh, for the men were lying in wait in the inner uh, room. 
But she, he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, um, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And uh, he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair. So he's going now from one thing that has nothing to do with it all to something that has to do with it. So he's getting closer to the thing. And then he tells her the actual process. And we know what happens with Samson. They shave his head while he's asleep. He wakes up. They go on. They grab him. And he is unable to fight them off because he's broken his Nazarite vow before God. They bring him out into the temples and they make fun of him and they criticize him and, and do all kinds of things to him and uh, make fun of his God and do all of those things. Eventually, what we find Samson doing is repenting from all of that. I think Samson, prior to his weakness, imagine imagine if you had the strength of God. You could kill 3,000 men, tear a lion apart. You could do all this stuff, amazing feats of strength. Would your head get a little prideful? His words seem to think, his, his jantering seems to think or seems to show that that's what's happening with him. And he gets so much so that maybe it's because of him and this and that. Nobody can take me down. He tells the story. They do it. The vow's broken and now God is removed from him. When he repents and his hair and Nazarite vow comes back, he is able to tear down the temple and kill them all. And I don't know how many of you have ever done those things where you start down one road and it kind of goes this way and it goes this way. And things just, you know, you're not getting the consequences that maybe life might be there. And then all of a sudden you get slammed with a big consequence and it's like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Okay. The third portion of this is, is how do they successfully complete the Nazarite vow? And it's really how to bring this to an end. And that's found back in Numbers in... Uh, and this is a long section, but 13 through 21. And it says this. Now this is the law of the Nazarite when the days of his separation are fulfilled. He shall bring, um, bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord. <clears throat> One male lamb, a year old without defect for a burnt offering, and a ewe lamb, a year old, without defect, for a sin offering, and one ram without defect for a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour, mixed with oil and unleavened wafers, spread with oil, along with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. Then the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. He shall also offer the ram for the sacrifice of, um, of a peace offering to the Lord, together with the basket of unleavened cakes. Uh, the priest shall likewise offer its grain offering and its drink offering. The Nazarite shall then, at this point, now shave his head, his dedicated head of hair. I like how they say that. His dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent of meeting and take the dedicated hair um, hair of his head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering 
the piece uh, the priest shall take the ram's shoulder uh, when it has been boiled and one unleavened cake and uh, out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after um, he shall shave he has shaved his dedicated hair then the priest shall wave them for a uh, wave offering before the Lord it is whole um, it is holy for the priest together uh, together with the breast offered by the wave offering by waving and the thigh offered by lifting so the breast is going to be waved and the thigh is going to be lifted and afterward the Nazarite now may drink wine this is the law of the Nazarite who vows his offering to the Lord according to the separation in addition to what else he can afford according to his vow which he takes so he shall do according to the law of, of his separation so okay. Sorry. so um, a life vow would successfully end at the termination of the person's life kind of makes sense right a specific period of time vow would terminate in the manner in which we just read. So the individual would bring a sacrifice and an offering as follows. And notice all the offerings that he is bring. which ones he's specifically hitting. He's hitting a burnt offering. He's hitting the sin offering. He's hitting the peace offering. He's going to bring a basket of unleavened cakes, fine flour, oil, unleavened wafers, and spread them with oil. He's gonna, they're going to do the drink offering and the grain offering that accompany those. Um, now, once all of that has been offered and done, the individual will shave his head of hair at the tent of meeting, um, and that it that has gone on the fire, and it is also part of a peace offering. Um, after his head is shaved, the priest takes the ram's shoulder; it's boiled, um, one unleavened cake, one unleavened wafer. He places them in the hands of the Nazarite. And then they take those items and wave them and lift them before the Lord is offered. And whatever else the individual can afford. That's quite a bit. But he is now able to now rejoin um, and move forward back. He's released out of these more stringent areas. The vow has ended and the person can now drink the wine and eat the grapes. Um, he can uh, cut his hair as needed um, and is able to make himself unclean for the preparation of the dead. Um, Paul talks about, um, in Acts, it's talked about Paul's when they break his... Uh, chapter 21... Verse 24. There it is. Um, it says, Take them, and he's referring to four other individuals who are also under a Nazarite vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. So each one of these guys is having to do this sacrifice, this level of sacrifice. 
okay, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads uh, to the... to the things which have been told about you, um, but that uh, you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law, but concerning um, the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, um, sorry, uh, we wrote, having decided that they uh, should abstain from meat, um, sacrifice to idols, and from the blood, and from what is strangled, and um, from fornication, Fornication. Then Paul uh, took them in, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice to of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. The last thing about the, the Nazarite vow I wanted to mention is found actually in Amos. And there seems to be in this part of it that God puts a warning out to those who would hinder or cause an individual under a Nazarite vow to break it, not of their will. And in 11 it starts, Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, and this is the warning, is this not so, um, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord, but you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down beneath you, as a wagon is weighed down when filled with sheaths. We don't see a lot of people taking Nazarite vows today. Haven't been to Israel recently. When I was there, I don't remember seeing one with really long hair and doing those things. Um, but there seems to be this idea of when somebody commits themselves to God, that those around them that force them out of that to break those commitments, to do those things, that there's a significant warning because these people are set up, separated and set apart from God. Um, it's best that we... When we know about it, when we support them, uh, we can challenge them if we see them or if we think that they're making wrong choices, decisions, and those types of things. Uh, But we definitely do not want to cause them to stop in, in the vow that they're making. Let's pray.